Hey, you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk podcast. We help you on the journey to reach your creative potential. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza! You can stay up to date with all things Creative Pep Talk by following me on Instagram at Andy J. Pizza. Let's get into today's episode. This episode is supported by In The Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express, the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In The Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Yushai. I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you want to hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In The Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. really needed to rehaul my website. I was talking to some web people, looking around, and I got intrigued by Squarespace's new Fluid Engine, partially because it just sounds cool, but also because it allows you to drag and resize and layer up anything you can imagine. I dove in, rebuilt my site. It's the most me site that I've ever had. I just absolutely love it. Launched it, got such a great response. Some industry illustration and designy peers even reached out and was like, hey, who coded this thing, man? I'm like, y'all, I did it by myself. No coding with Squarespace's new Fluid Engine. I told him like, you should go check it out. You're gonna be surprised with what you can do. And I built this thing before Squarespace reached out to sponsor the show. So I was like, boom, easy peasy. I was gonna tell you about this new site anyway. Go check it out, anyjpizza.com if you wanna see what I did with it. If you want to try it yourself, make a site that's totally you, where you can build a portfolio, sell content and courses and all kinds of other stuff, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with promo code PEPTALK, all one word, all uppercase. All right, I am so pumped about this episode. I can't, I can't even tell you. The first reason, well, I, I will tell you. I'm going to tell you right now. The first reason I am super pumped is we have a huge announcement. We just launched our second ever Skillshare online class. The first class was so amazing and it was incredible to take some of the ideas and really flesh them out in ways that we never could just with audio and uh, the, the feedback and the energy and, and everything that happened with Skillshare was so fantastic that they approached us to do another class and this class is even closer to my heart. It's called Find Your Style, Five Exercises to Unlock Your Creative Identity. I am so passionate about this class. In fact, it might be my favorite creative work that I've ever made. I'm not joking or exaggerating. The first reason I'm so passionate and, and, and why it's my favorite thing is because it's probably the purest effort that we've ever made to embody one of my most deeply held core values. And this is what it is. Education is an art form. 
We made costumes, told stories, poured our blood, sweat, tears, and guts into this class. It's not gross, I promise. Uh, it's, it's just fun and and hopefully meaningful. Um, and I am so like I I really want all of the listeners to see these videos. But you can only do it if, if you take the class. So go to Skillshare.com slash Creative Pep. Now you get two free months. Take the class today. The second reason I am obsessed with this class and the things inside of it is because I believe that finding your style, aka finding your creative identity, really, really matters. Whenever I talk about the ideas in this class or the ideas in the episode that we're going to do here in a second, I get so fired up that on several occasions, people have asked me why I care so much about finding your style or finding your creative sensibility or finding your creative identity. Why does this matter to me so much? And at first I thought, I think it's just because these ideas are super cool. Like I really just, I think they're really interesting, helpful, useful ideas. But I dove deeper and I realized that the reason I'm so obsessed with these ideas is because these practices are responsible for saving my creative career and unlocking creative work that I do now that really means the world to me. These ideas were the catalyst to making work that matters to me and I believe that just matters in general to the world. This class and this episode uh, comes from the things that I did when my career was in the toilet when we hit the recession in 2008. At the time, I was doing work that was pretty much completely based on trends and just more or less what was fashionable at the time. I genuinely like was stoked on this stuff, but it wasn't coming from anywhere deep within me. For a little bit, this was enough to pay the bills and it was some fun to make, but when the recession hit, the world more or less paused, and this work was not enough to keep the lights on. And by keeping the lights on, I mean both literally, like I couldn't pay the bills with that trend-based work anymore, like all the jobs dried up, and then metaphorically, because when the times got tough and push came to shove, in the face of a recession, this work just didn't matter enough to me to fight for, that the lights the, in my motivational spirit had gone out. Like I just, it didn't, this work wasn't meaningful enough to me to actually push deeper into when things got tough. I don't know if you've looked out your window lately, but the world has also come to a pause again. In fact, if you're on the West Coast and you look out the window, you're going to see that the world is literally on fire. In times like this, when the world is pausing, when the outside world pauses and you're forced to stay put, you're forced to not just progress like things are normal and all things are good, it's easy to feel like what's the point in making creative work at all? Why should I be making creative work? Why should I keep fighting for this creative stuff? It's easy to feel like you're making and, and you're fighting for this stuff is just completely meaningless. Now, I'm about to say something that might sound out of character, but I think it's important to say, and, and it might not sound like a pep talk at first, but I promise you that it is. What if when things get real like they have been recently, your creative work feels meaningless because... It is. <laughs> oh, stay with me. When the outside world pauses, which it always does, it just it's a cyclical process. The world progresses. 
because a few people in this pause get started on an inner journey. There are countless stories of deep internal strength and discovery being found from individuals who have used these pauses, these moments where the outer world stops and they start to look within and get real. If you're in a place where you're struggling to find motivation to create work that feels meaningless, here's my suggestion. Quit. Give up on that work. Quit beating yourself up for not fighting for something that's not worth fighting for. Instead, reach inside and find work and messages and meaning that is worth fighting for, that is worth creating, even when things are crazy, especially when things are crazy. Find that inner motivation and resonance that's worth developing and sharpening your creativity for and get started on that inner path today. Just a few weeks ago, we spoke about an episode of the NPR podcast, Hidden Brain, that claims that factually speaking, facts are not enough to change people's minds and hearts. In this episode, they dive deep into the truth that it's, it's not facts that determine how people feel about a vaccine. Like very few people have actually done the experiments themselves to know that the facts are why they take a vaccine or why they refuse one. No, it's the story that they believe around the vaccine that determines their actions. It's true. When it's truth and facts versus stories that resonate, stories win every time. It's just the way we're wired. But I think there's some hope. I believe that when truth is combined with stories, it is utterly unbeatable. And here's the thing about you as a creative person, no matter what type of creativity you do, you are the storytellers. The brand around the product is the story. The illustration is the story that sells the article. The protest sign is the story that moves the lawmaker and the voter. I have seen the protests change hearts and change perspectives. I've seen people from all over the political spectrum get motivated by the stories being told. The story is why your consciousness progressed and evolved into a more loving and accepting and affirming person in your own journey. So if you're looking out your window and you see the world is paused or worse, literally on fire, what would it look like to quit trying to motivate yourself to keep making work that feels meaningless, but instead kickstart that inner journey and start finding the creative work that matters so much to you that it provides its own motivation. This is the work that comes from your creative identity. This is the work that emanates from your creative sensibility. Let's get started in finding it. You're listening to the Creative Pep Talk Podcast Skillshare Class Review. My name is Morgan, and I am here today to tell you just a few of the many reasons you should run, not walk, to go take Andy's newest class about finding your style on Skillshare. First and foremost, I gotta say, 
outside of the educational and practical and all of the good stuff you can get out of it, this class is just straight up entertaining. If I'm being truly honest, I watched the whole thing two days in a row. Yeah, I did. The first time it was kind of just for like auxiliary pep while I was working on a mural. And then the next day I was so stoked about what he offered in this course that I went back and was like, let me dig into these tasks, man. So first and foremost, it's just a fun watch. Even if you don't really dive into the content, just get that, get that pep by osmosis. Second of all, this course is way, 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 way more actionable, practical, tactical than I think I've ever seen from a resource about finding your style. You know, it can seem like this nebulous someday maybe I will kind of deal, but the, the tactics and tasks offered in this course made me feel more empowered to do something about finding my style more proactively than just making a bunch of stuff and hoping that it would pop out of nowhere. And last but probably my favorite is that this course and the skills that it teaches feel absolutely timeless to me. Um, I'm currently, if I was in the high school of art careers, probably like a beginning of the year sophomore, you know, I'm starting to find my sea legs and, and figure things out. But I feel like the content in this course is really applicable for anywhere along your creative path. It's almost like when you write letters to yourself and find them later in life, you know, you can always update, wow, where did I come from? Where am I going? Who am I? And that's what this course felt like is that it's not something you're going to do once and then forget about. It's a skill that you learn how to build and check in with over time. And if I can tell you anything about this course, most of all, it will not give you the answers. I know. Nothing can, but it did something really, really important for me. And that was begin to ask me the right questions. So thank you, Andy, for creating this course. Thank you to Skillshare for hosting it. I strongly encourage anyone who feels like finding a style is this abstract someday thing to go and check out the class. So, Maybe you got hyped. Maybe you got jazzed. You were like, all right, I'm ready to dig deeper. I'm ready to find my style. I'm ready to create from my soul and not just with trends. So how do you do it? We touched on the idea of taste in the Skillshare style class that we just launched, but we didn't have enough time to dive super deep into it. So I wanted to do that here in this episode because I think it's going to be really useful to supplement the class with this information. And I'm just super pumped about it. Okay. Why am I so pumped about it? Well, first of all, I believe that creating from your personal taste is the most essential ingredient to making powerful creative work that is both super authentic and really effective. Secondly, I've done a ton of work around this idea. You know, we we put out an episode, episode 229 last year, all about taste. But I've been working on this idea and developing it, and I had some breakthroughs that I've been dying to share with you. Okay. So episode 229, we talked about taste in a big way. Essentially, the idea is that the key to making great creative work, in my opinion, is making from your personal taste, not from your skill, i.e. there's a 
million resources out there telling you that the key to great creative work is just put 10,000 hours of work in. Just do the work. Just keep swimming. Just keep developing your craft. But why is it then that someone with very little skill or mastery over the guitar can make something that is more soul-stirring than your Uncle Roger can, who's so skilled with the guitar that he can play Stairway to Heaven backwards with his pinky toe? Why? Why do... Why... Why, if it's all about the 10,000 hours, why can someone who's not the best guitar player make the best songs? What's that all about? I think the answer is taste. The foundation to great creative work, in my opinion, isn't what you can do, but how deeply you can receive. To paraphrase Gordon Ramsay, the makings of a great chef aren't found in cooking skill, but in tasting skill. Not what you can do, but what you can receive, what you can taste. Do you have a super palate that can detect a broad spectrum of flavor? If so, you have the makings of a great chef. Are you hypersensitive to a medium? This sensitivity is your taste. This sensitivity informs your intuition, and this intuition is your sensibility. Think about that as two words, sense. Ability, aka the ability that is informed by your super senses and your super sensitivity. This term sensibility is how I've been talking about taste with my friends. And I even started working on a new some new projects around it. But you know me, I'm a blabber mouth and I get so excited about it that I have to just tell the podcast listeners about what I've been finding out before I even get to those projects. So that's what this is. I want to share with you all the practical ways that I have been leading with my sensibility or my taste in my own creative career. So let's do it. The five steps to leading with your true creative superpower, your creative sense ability. Okay, sensibility might sound true or sound like a good idea, but does it actually work? Rather than belabor the point by explaining the idea philosophically from every angle, I'm going to explain how the idea works. And as I talk about how to do it, it'll kind of explain itself. There are five steps in the process of letting your creative sensibility lead your practice. They are one, collect resonance, two, find patterns, three, set your target, four, decode mechanics, and five, critique. Okay. So let's break it down. In my experience and in my observations of my creative heroes, this process truly seems to be the key to unlocking your creative potential. Philosophy is often defined as an attempt to define the good life. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but that's kind of one of the main idea behind philosophy is what is the good life? What does it mean to live the good life as a human? And this is kind of my creative philosophy. This is my definition of what it looks like to live the good life as a creative person. I'm very obsessed. I've noticed recently that I'm very obsessed with creative journeys. I just notice it. If you, <laughs> I don't know. How did I not know this? You all knew that already. But I, I love watching, you know, I started watching this documentary about Dana Carvey. He, they made this show. I'm not even, I, I like Dana Carvey, you know, especially when I was little, I did. But I'm not like a super fan. So why do I want to watch a documentary about this show that they made that didn't work out? And it's some, there's something about, I'm obsessed with 
the decision making and the choices and the processes of what it takes to find your true potential and not miss out on it or make a wrong turn. And so in my pursuit of that, I've seen these patterns and it's really informed this process. All right, let's break it down. Step one, collect resonance. Creative sensibility is about finding where you're a super taster, you know, defining your most sensitive creative senses. Where do you have just a highly sensitive palate creatively? These may start with your physical senses, but they almost always are more deeply connected to the senses of your mind, heart, and even your spirit. I'd go so far to say the quickest shortcut to finding this sensitivity and developing it into a true ability is to just make a list or a collection of the creations that have hit you in the deepest ways. Think of your sensitivity, this sense ability, starting like the Richter scale for earthquakes. What creative things have you encountered and consumed that tipped that scale off the charts? What are the things that lit it up? Like it's it's off the radar. We don't even have a, a scale for this kind of activity. That that's like if these creative things you're consuming were you know in an apocalyptic film. AKA 2020. Anyway, sometimes it, it's helpful to see this extreme activity by comparing yourself to others' sensitivity. Sometimes we don't know how special our skills or talents or sensitivities are until we're stood next to somebody who doesn't have that same sensitivity. Did you ever walk out of a movie and just feel like profoundly changed and you look over your friends and, and and you're like, did you, what did you think? And they're like, it was pretty good. And you're like, what? This shows a deeper sensitivity to something. Write that movie down. Okay. Make a list, make a collection. However you see fit. We go into some collecting methods, methodology in the Skillshare style class. Forget trying to find coherence at this stage. Don't try to know. The whole point of this freaking process is to surprise yourself with things you didn't know. So don't go into it uh, with preconceptions. Let yourself surprise yourself. Remember things you love that you completely had forgotten about. Go back to your, the womb times. What was doing it for you? The music your mom was playing you. You know, those, you know, they recommend you're, you're playing Bach and, and Mozart to your kids. My mom was probably playing, I don't know, Godsmack. Um, it, Godsmack didn't exist when I was in the womb, but that does give you a little bit of a picture into my mother. Uh, anyway, um, you, won't, you won't learn anything new if you have this, you know, if you presuppose your current perception onto this collection before you start gathering. Instead, make it totally non-judgmental, style and medium agnostic, and just collect purely based on that visceral Richter scale, that sensitivity. What is the stuff that has just gone off the charts? I'm going to share how I use this process real quick to find some of my biggest creative breakthroughs in, in my practice. So here's kind of what I did. But also, I want to challenge you to use these ideas to notice how these practices have been used by your creative heroes. This isn't an invention of Dr. Andy J. Pizza, not a real doctor, I uh, just feel like I have to throw that out there. As the podcast gets bigger, I get worried that the joke of Dr. Pizza is somehow going to come back to haunt me like, you said you had a PhD. I never did. Um, but but uh, as I'm going through these and my examples, I want you to think about how you've heard your heroes do this process intuitively because it's something that I noticed, not something I created. You know, my first memory of a hero 
doing this collection practice was Wes Anderson talking about Charlie Brown Christmas and the soundtrack to that and why he used that was it was such a profound it it shook his Richter scale baby and uh, it's I've also seen it in Aaron Draplin the way that he goes garage sailing and collecting mid-century design ephemera all of my favorite creators were first collectors and connoisseurs and you're going to start noticing that as you as you go consume and read and, and, and interact and engage with your creative heroes. For me, in this collection, the big hitters were things like Jim Henson's Fraggle Rock, Hayao Miyazaki's Spirited Away, Tova Janssen's Moomin, Antoine de Saint-Exupery's book, The Little Prince, and Dr. Seuss's Walk It in My Pocket. These were some, I had, there was a bunch more. Um, these are just some of the biggest ones, uh, and they're good examples of just things that shook my Richter scale, baby. That sounds like it could be a bar, you know, in, in some kind of R&B song, maybe like a Tyler the Creator. It reminds me of like Earthquake. I love that song, but I don't think it's in my collection. I don't know if it makes it there, but... Uh, you shake my Richter scale, uh, baby. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to keep saying that. All right, let's go to number two. Step two is all about looking for patterns in your collection. Now, step one and step two, I am aware that we have talked about some of these ideas in the podcast before, and we do jump into them in the style thing in a, in a, in a deeper way and in kind of a different lens. But they are these two steps are essential to getting to some of the things that we haven't really dove into, and they're good reminders, so shut up. I need to remember it all the time. I still do this process. I do this process probably like once a once a month um actually i still go back to this and i and i try to keep it updated and fresh and like as my taste and point of views and sensibility evolves as things happen step two is about looking for patterns in your collection okay listen i'm sick of this getting underutilized okay it's it it is a little bit challenging but you can do it. This next step requires the diligence that can only be described as an act of faith. You have to believe it. Please believe it. I promise you, if you do, you are going to find some interesting things. Here's not only that, magical things, exciting things, things that are going to just, here's the belief I'm, I'm supposing you buy wholesale. There are no coincidences. I really, I don't, I don't know if I buy that in terms of stuff that happens to you, but I do believe that in terms of what you like. When I started to analyze my resonance collection from step one, I could have done it so much quicker if I wasn't constantly grappling with the doubt that there were no patterns. Like I kept, as I was trying to think of like, why do I like this stuff? I remember in those early days, just repeatedly thinking, there's nothing more here. I just like these things because I like them. It's, there's nothing else. They're just cool, okay? Uh, but, but the fact of the matter is I like them so much more than other people. There had to be a reason why they resonated on a deeper level. And that's what I'm asking you to believe, that there is a reason. It is connected to your DNA, your experience, your identity, your, your sensory devices, you know, your, your ear for music, your eyes for pictures, your, your heart for engaging with the story. There's something about your taste and your sensitivity that is different. That's why these things are registering the way that they are. And if you will believe that you will put in enough time to find the patterns and unlock what it is. These things are doing for you. This doubt was the biggest hurdle I had to fight through in my 
first experience of using this process. Before you ever go through this creative process, it's hard to believe how magical it can be. But once you start finding patterns in your collection, it will so surprise and delight you that you won't be able to quit doing this process for the rest of your life. I completely believe it. It's addictive. Once you start finding these connections in your life and your taste, it becomes like synchronicity. It becomes like, it gives you like that, that feeling of like, there's something matters here. There's something meaningful to this. I'm a big believer that your consciousness is infinite and that there is no end to you and therefore no end to the connections that you can find throughout your lifetime doing this process. So like many artists before me who have found these patterns and found them game changing, I implore you to take this process seriously and believe that you will find surprises that change everything for your practice. Here's a useful process for finding these patterns, okay? Processes within processes. Make a list of six things that define the style or sensibility of these creations in your collection. You know, take a book, take, you know, a movie, whatever it is, and just try to write a list of six things that kind of consistently play throughout this thing that define its tone. Having to quantify this abstracted nature of why you like what you like is a powerful process in its own right. But if you do this thoroughly enough, you'll start to see some of the same qualities. You know, when you list, here's six things I love about this creation, and then six things about this other creation from your collection, all of a sudden, one or two things are going to show up on multiple lists. And if you go to my Instagram at Andy J Pizza, you'll see that I've done this for three of my favorites recently in the, the front uh, one is a visual style guide for Wes Anderson, but we also do Tova Jansen and Boys to Men. Okay, for my personal journey through this process, I found that there was this theme of hidden.ness This was early. This was like 2009 that I, that I was going through this process intuitively without realizing it. Fraggle Rock from my list was a hidden world. Hidden world behind the wall of an old man's workshop. Spirited Away was a world hiding from our dimension in the spirit realm. The Little Prince told a story about a world in space that was obviously hidden to us, but also had drawings that hid things in them. And we'll get to that in a minute. And Walk It In My Pocket is a little known Dr. Seuss book. It's my favorite Dr. Seuss book by Miles. And it's all about creatures hiding in a little boy's house. Hiddenness, hiddenness. That was the main pattern that I found from doing this process. What did it mean? I had no clue, but that's where step three comes in. Hey, I'm Taylor, and I've been an avid, possibly even rabid, listener of the Creative Pep Talk podcast for almost three years, and I just took Andy's new Skillshare class, and I gotta gush about it. I mean, I, in quarantine, I've watched Stranger Things all the way through, probably... 10 times. So when Andy announced this new class, I was really excited to have something new to watch. And it was a blast. I mean, as you probably know, if you're listening to this episode, but I just want to say in case you're new around here, CPT, the podcast is full of what I'd call Andy's um, like canon, where he illustrates these ideas and metaphors with anecdotes that are really, really memorable, like the tower story and how invisible things came to be. 
I loved watching stories from the podcast acted out in performance and animations in this new class. The use of the video as medium, the animated illustrations, these cosmic performances, which are totally new. Um, this is just like a great example of something that Andy teaches in the class, which is that artistic style spreads across different mediums. And I really appreciate that as an expanding alchemist, to use a term from a recent episode. This new class is kind of like a curated mixtape where Andy has gathered like all of these ingredients about finding your style and jam-packed them into one place, but then like expanded on them and injected them with even more special sauce. I guess that doesn't really sound like a mixtape. Um, it's probably more like a sandwich. Um, it, is, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is, it is tasty. I love it. My favorite part about this class was the Populate Your World lesson. Uh, Andy like redefines what style even is which is already amazing. And this particular lesson made me realize that I've already begun to make some of these decisions about like rules or guidelines in my art through consistent decisions, but I've been doing it unconsciously. Like I always make my smiles crooked and my textures are lumpy bumpy. And after Andy's class, I have the tools to think a lot more deliberately and intentionally about them so that I can make the decisions even more consistently and generate truly meaningful work in my own unique voice. I know you all know what I mean when I say that the concept of finding your style, oh my God, it's exhausting. It's such an abstract mystery. Feels like we spent all of our time investigating it and then getting nowhere. But it feels like Andy has actually solved this mystery and is letting us all in on the secret. I don't know why, but I'm really happy that he's doing it. <laughs> on that note, I'm actually about to go rewatch it. So, um, yeah, I gotta go. Thank you so much for making this class, Andy. Okay, step three is set your target. Once you find your pattern or your patterns, the next step is to relate it back to your own lived experiences and passions. This is where you really find out why these things resonate with you. This is where you transition from being, you know, from finding what am I inspired by to figuring out why does this inspire me? Finding this why is essential to determining your creative target, which is how you get really good. But I'm getting ahead of myself though. Uh, <laughs> I've often said that comedians are the masters of creativity, partially because they have such a clearly defined target, getting laughs. When you have a target, you can practice hitting it. Creative target practice is the key to becoming undeniably fantastic as a creative person. But the best comedians don't stop with just a broadly defined target. It's not just laughs. They, def they define their own creative bullseye informed by their creative sensibility. That's what these patterns are all about, man. It's not enough for the best of the best of comics to say they want laughs. They want, you know, laughs are just the target. What would it mean for them to personally hit? What is it, what's a bullseye to them, their particular point of view? That means not just getting laughs, but if you listen to the world's best comics, you're going to hear them talk about that they are going for a particular laugh, a, you know, a particular kind of laugh. In fact, you know, you might have even heard this story that uh, comedian Dave Chappelle walked away from millions and millions of dollars to do season three of his Chappelle show because he felt like he was getting the wrong kind of laughs. He heard someone laugh and he thought, 
they're laughing at me. They're laughing at black people. And I don't think, I don't want to make this kind of work anymore. And I mean, man, what a pure unwavering pursuit of his personal bullseye. It's just uh, absolutely incredible. And he wouldn't have that if he didn't have that finely tuned target. So how do you determine this finely tuned target? Ask why. Okay, it's not that easy, but it's almost that easy. Ask why seven times. <laughs> I was recently interviewed on the uh, Design Speaks podcast, and the host, Brandy C., reminded me of this process of the seven whys. Basically, it's a tool for getting to the bottom of something. This is a tactic that's kind of informed by the school of philosophy known as the skeptics. Uh, it's an incredibly powerful way to find the most powerful concentrated truth behind almost any unconscious behavior or truth. It's simple. You just start with one of the patterns from step two that you want to investigate and you just start asking why it matters to you. Why is this something that resonates for you? Let me give you an example of how it worked for me. I might ask, why does hiddenness move me so much? And my first answer might be like, because it's cool, man. Uh, and then, and then my, you know, smarter self might be like, well, you know, number two, why, why is it cool? And then I'd have to think and be like, mm, because it hints at powerful and fascinating truths that there's more to life than what meets the eye. There's more going on here than what we can see. And then my third why might be, why is that powerful or fascinating? Well, because in everyday life, it's easy to forget that everything that matters is virtually invisible. Love, connection, the, you know, th these things aren't things you see, but they are the things that matter. The author of the book, The Little Prince, said it this way, it's only with the heart that one can see rightly what is essential is invisible to the eye. My fourth why might be, why are these things essential? Well, because they're the reason for living. Without love, without truth, without justice, without meaning, without mystery, life is just too boring and full of pain and suffering to stay tuned in for. Number five might be, why do you say boring in the same breath as pain and suffering? And I think this question's interesting because you look at your answer and you say, you know, uh, it, it maybe not isn't, isn't the obvious why, but it, what's the thing that's curious about it? Well, I think the curious thing is I'm using boring in the same breath as pain and suffering. What's that all about? Why? Because for me, as someone with ADHD, all visible stuff in life is that left-brained, detail-oriented, task-related stuff that makes life seem so pointless and tedious and meaningless. There's a lyric uh, from one of my favorite bands, Modest Mouth, Modest Mouth, that I think really gets to it. And it goes, we carried it, all the groceries in while hauling out the trash. And it's just about this idea of like, just this you know, uh, meaningless like cycle of bringing groceries, haul out the trash, bringing groceries. And it's just like when you're stuck in that visible reality, it's just, you know, it, it, to me, it's like if all there is to life is the maintenance of our bodies, then it's just not worth it. For me, all of my reasons for living are 
in those deeper, invisible, hidden realities. That's the stuff. You know, when you read about quantum physics and its overlap with spirituality, that's the stuff that gives me the strength to carry in the groceries and haul out the trash. You know what I mean? See how this works? You start to get stuff that really freaking matters to you, that's really unique to you. Through this process, I started to see that my ADHD made me very right brain dominant and obsessed and deeply sensitive to the hidden big pictures of life. It was through this process that I determined what I wanted to make in my work that, you know, my target was I wanted you to encounter that feeling of deep mystery that reminds you of why life matters so much. I want to make creative work that feels like one part mystical experience and one part the gravity of a, of a funeral. Now, hear me out. I'm not trying to start a cult or devastate anybody. It, in fact, it's the opposite. I want creative, you know, I want my creative expression to give you all the benefits of these intense life events without having to actually experience them. I want you to feel, you know, remember that your family matters to you without losing any of them just through the simulation of a, a creative endeavor. That's what I want to do. That's what my favorite things do. Here's a quick shortcut for uh, doing step three. In some ways, I've found that my sensitivity to hiddenness and mystery is the inverse to my deep intolerance for boredom and the mundane in life. If you get stuck in this step, sometimes it's easier to start with what you can't stand and look for the inverse as your target. It's almost as your work becomes an antidote to what you see as the poison of life. One other quick side note on this, you know, this gets really, really, really interesting because not only does it help you make better work when you really understand what you're trying to do in the work, it also helps you sell it better because all of a sudden you can explain to other people what your creative work is going to do for them. And that is the essential quality of good marketing for any type of business is to be able to clearly define how this is going to benefit your audience. Step four, once you have found your target, you can actually decode the mechanics of how your heroes hit this target, okay? So step four is decoding the mechanics. Sounds very, <laughs> sounds very serious. All right, so once you have the target, you know, the feelings or the internal result that you like to get produced for you, that you want to produce in your audience. By the way, this is another little secret about why I feel like this might be the secret to existence, not just not just the good life creatively, but the good life generally is because what you're doing here is you're saying, man, I, I really like when creative work does this thing in me. Like it sets me on fire. And then you're saying, you know, I like when people do that for me. I'm going to go do that for other people. That's the golden rule. It's do unto others as you want done to you. It's but on a on a systematic, mechanical, like intentional level, like supercharged. It's on steroids, uh, like fine fine tooth comb, fine. I don't I don't know, like microscopic level of delivering exactly what you like done to you. 
you know, giving people what you didn't get, as Gary Shandling said, if you like the Buddhist version um, from from this uh, Buddhist comic. But yeah, the, once you have the target of like, this is what I want to produce in my audience because I like it being produced in me, the next step is to figure out how do you actually accomplish this on a mechanical level? What are the secrets? Uh, you know, this feeling being produced in you, I'm very interested in the fact that that is a chemical reaction that happens when you laugh. There's a chemical, energetic, uh, electric thing happening within you. And the way that a punchline and, you know, uh, adding tags and all of the mechanical stuff of a comic, those are all the chemical pieces that need to come together to create this combustion. There is a very scientific mechanical part to this. And that's where we're going to go in step four. Okay. Step four is about figuring out how do your heroes do what they do? We do this by decoding the mechanics of how your favorite creators achieve the feelings they produce in you. These mechanics are your creative hero's modus operandi, aka the particular way they do what they do, aka how they use their creative sensibility. Here's what I want you to do. Isolate the moment from the creations, from your collections that produce that target, that mo the, what is the part of this creative work that is the most intense experience of your targets that you're trying to produce? This is where the sensitivity of your senses are essential because they are why you are able to tune in to exactly the moment where something is happening, where that target is being produced. You've got to use that sensitivity. Go back through these collections with your target in mind now from step three and, and, and use your creative palette to determine where that creative Richter scale is off the charts for that target. Okay, I want you to go back through and I want you to try to break down how they achieve this feeling in you on a mechanical level. For me, this looked like isolating not just Fraggle Rock, but the episode of Fraggle Rock, but not just the episode of Fraggle Rock, but the line that made me well up with tears as a kid, then watching it back over and over and going through the scene line by line and figuring out in the script, how did they achieve this chemical combustion within me? Asking why did this hit me, both in terms of personal experience, but also how did they unlock this feeling in me just in terms of craft? My favorite example on my journey is seeing the mechanics that were used in both Dr. Seuss's Walking in My Pocket and in my favorite book, The Little Prince, because they used the same mechanical structure. Both of these books used the gap between words and pictures to create a sense of mystery and intrigue. In Walk It, for instance, um, <laughs> I really wanted to try to say walk it as a, like a scholar, like an intellectual, uh, I love using walk it as short for walk it in my pocket. I love pretending to be a literary critic in relationship to something as silly as Dr. Seuss. But anyway, back to my analysis of walk it, Seuss's walk it. He says there's a vug under the rug. He doesn't explain what a vug is. He never shows you in the illustration what a vug is. 
a bug in the book is just hiding under a rug and it's never revealed what it looks like. This leaves everything to your imagination, which is this chemical combustion that happens in your brain. This page is where my creative Richter scale, you know, just exploded. So I, I didn't just say Dr. Seuss. I didn't just say that book. I didn't just uh, leave it there. I went back to the exact page and I broke down how did this chemical combustion happen. The Little Prince has two illustrations in that book that do a very similar thing by exploiting the space between the gap between the words and the pictures for some maximum effect. This is a tool that I've been exploring in my own illustrations. Um, this space, this leap of logic into the poetic of the nonsensical, if you will, is where all my best ideas are found. And I found this tool by reverse engineering the mechanics of my heroes. I do this in my public speaking practice as well. I've gone so go I've gone so far to take a story from like one of my favorite storytellers and isolate it, break it down to its most basic parts, figure out how they produce that moment of aha within me. Like I've taken, you know, this will look like listening to a talk and then remembering where did that creative Richter scale go crazy and then isolate that story and then play it back and take notes and rewind it and repeat it over and over until I get the basic parts of how they produced what they produced. Sounds intense, right? Uh, <laughs> it is super intense, but this is why starting with your collection of resonance, your collection of obsessions is completely essential to this process. The things you are super sensitive to have a depth for you that you can spend countless hours with. There are foods that you could eat almost every day, right? Not everybody feels like that. It's that kind of stuff that you will be able to spend countless hours meticulously decoding and reverse engineering the mechanics of those creations. Uh, it reminds me of Hunter S. Thompson, you know, obsessively retyping word for word his favorite novel, The Great Gatsby. You can find this powerful uh, reserve of energy if you start with these obsessions. These energy reserves are the fuel that has animated almost every great creator to my knowledge. imagine if like authors just uh, spent all this time writing a book and just put it out onto a streaming service and just been and just called it a day like it just that no no like and it's sad to me that there's things like illustration or things like music that we value and bring so much to our everyday life and we, you know, artists put them out there without, you know, asking to be compensated properly. And I actually think that you should do whatever it takes to figure out a strategy for Patreon, to figure out a way to create a relationship with you and your super fans where they are supporting what you do because they care about what you're making. And it's going to take some trial and error. It's going to take some strategy. It's going to take some thinking to see what works and it'll take some time. But I suggest you get started now. One of our sponsors is patreon.com. We have been Patreon members for years and it's a big part of my creative practice. Super huge fans. Go to patreon.com and go get started by getting support directly from your audience. This is a sustainable way to build a creative practice and I'm a big 
supporter of it. Go check it out, patreon.com. Last step, step five is critique your heroes. After you have some knowledge of how mechanically your heroes are doing what you're doing, you need to start injecting. You're not going to take the, you know, when you break down this little illustration that a public speaker does, you don't just take that illustration and then go do it. You use those mechanics and you filter your own stories, your own experiences, your own points of view, your own ideas through those mechanics and you get something totally different. Step five is, in my opinion, the moment of creative transcendence. This is where the artist is born. It sounds pretty magical. Uh, Well, it is, and it also isn't, which is kind of the best part. Possibly the best thing about this process is how it demystifies the creative process and shows the humble role of the individual artist. In my opinion, the role of the creative isn't to break the mold as much as it is to critique it. When you see creativity through this lens, it's not, it not only becomes less daunting, it's also just a lot more fun and I would argue much more powerful. When you see creation as the ultimate form of critique, you get to the heart of the matter of what creativity is really all about and you get into the game where the ball is like actually live in your lifetime. I can't get into all that, but <laughs> I'll say, okay. Let's talk about what I mean by creation as critique. Lots of creatives have spoke to this over the years. James Murphy of LCD Sound System uh, said the best way to complain is to make something. Meaning instead of just saying, this song sucks, explain exactly what you mean by making your own song that doesn't suck. You know, take take a song that you hate and just critique it. Be like, you know, well, this is wrong. This is wrong. He, they go to the chorus wrong here. They use that chord here that's wrong. Da, 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 da. And just make the opposite. Michelangelo said it this way. He said critique by creating. But my favorite explanation comes from philosopher George Steiner in his book, Real Presences. The book is about uh, how the divine and the transcendence is really present in art. Uh, not figuratively, not metaphorically, but like it, that he believed that art is transcendent, that it carries the presence of the divine. And so do I, George. Uh, God rest your soul. And although this is like a really lofty idea from someone as scholarly as Steiner, he almost instantly grounds this idea by saying that creation is merely a form of critique. And in, in Steiner's point of view, in a utopian society, there would be no art critics. The only way to critique a piece of work would be to make something yourself that improves upon the idea. He goes on to say that it's not just an idealist way of thinking for a perfect society. It's how the best art is made. In Steiner's mind, the Aeneid can be seen as a critique and a progression of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Like, and every great masterwork after that is somehow commenting on and critiquing the everything that came before it. In this way, your your sensibility's true power is born not from some flash of genius, but rather when your point of view or your taste becomes so personally refined that the work of your heroes no longer satiates your creative hunger. And once you get there, the only thing that can satisfy you is your own work that you create. When you get that refined palate, all of a sudden, nobody's making the steak the way you like it cooked. And so you just got to start cooking your own steaks, baby. 
I've, I've said it uh, before and I'll say it again on the show a million times. The hero is born when they disobey their masters. The hero that is needed, that to be the hero they need to be, they have to be something that their master isn't because if their master was it, we wouldn't need that hero. Luke becomes the hero of his story when he disobeys Yoda and abandons his training to save Leia and Han. This is because this story needs a hero that's willing to take risks. You know, if Yoda was that kind of hero, maybe he would have stopped Darth Vader a long time ago. I don't know, Yoda. Huh? I'm critiquing you because I love you because you're one of my heroes. Um, I do love Yoda. My God, I could talk about Yoda for a long time. And Jim Henson, how they made the puppet, and Frank Oz, and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, I know too much about it because I like it so much. It could be in my collection. Um, he is very hidden and mysterious. <sighs> anyway, the moment you're willing to make work that your heroes may turn their nose up at or shrug off is the moment you become the hero of your own creative journey and you stop playing a bit part in their stories. Here's a little extra hint if you're struggling with this one. Sometimes being willing to make work that your heroes wouldn't is just being willing to make work knowing that you're not as good at, at something as them. You know, just accepting your own limitations. Sometimes being less skilled makes your work more approachable or accessible. And we need those kind of heroes. Sometimes it's your shortcomings, not your superiority, that makes you uniquely equipped to be the hero of your story. Okay. Woo. That was, I was high as a kite on these ideas, on this creative philosophy. Um, <laughs> if you get anything from this episode, uh, if, if you even just feel a little bit grateful for something you got from this, I hope that that gratitude becomes the seed in which uh, you are, you know, it, c compelled by to keep going. I hope it just becomes the seed of new beginnings within you in a time where it's really easy to feel like everything's ending. Uh, let me explain what I mean by that. Back in 2008, things were pretty bleak. They might not have been as bleak as this in, in many ways, but it was a really bleak time to graduate college as a creative person. The outer world had completely paused and it made me want to pause and ultimately really it made me want to give up my creative journey altogether. But something called me to keep going and I'm really grateful that I did. Since then I've learned uh, that when something forces your outer journey to stop, it's time to start your inner journey. When I'm in a liminal space where I just can't seem to move the ball forward or move the needle forward, whatever whatever you got to move forward to get into this metaphor, uh, when I feel like nothing I'm doing is pushing that f anything forward on the outside, I look inside and think about what do I need to change inside? What do I need to see inside? I'm really grateful 
that I didn't give up back in 08. Working through this creative sensibility process, this is where I started using some of these ideas uh, and working through it over and over and over has brought so much richness to my life. Just doing this stuff, doing this process. This is, I, in my opinion, this is the creative life. This is the creative process. Doing it over and over, over the past 12 years has made my life really enjoyable and, and rich and meaningful. And if any of this work that I do makes your life a little bit more enjoyable or a little bit more meaningful, I'm guessing you're glad that I didn't give up in 08 either. Now, I want you to realize when things look as bad as they do right now, that there are people in the future that will be super grateful that when the world stopped on the outside, you started to look on the inside. Don't deprive those future fans of those deep hidden gems within you. If you're struggling to keep making work that feels meaningless, quit struggling and give that crap up. Instead, stop making that meaningless stuff. Stop and use this moment to find work that really matters to you. If you do this, I am certain that this work is going to really matter to so many of us in the future. And we thank you for starting to look within when everything on the outside seems to have stopped. What's up, what it is, what it do? This is Marco of Masterminds Connect, and today I'll be talking about the Find Your Style class on Skillshare. This class was created by Andy J. Pizza, who has a great podcast, Creative Pep Talk podcast, obviously, and this class is exactly what you need if you're trying to find your style. I like to draw things that are very nostalgic, things that I used to like in my childhood, and these exercises really helped me pinpoint why I draw what I draw and why it means so much to me. And really doing the homework and actually participating in the class is a really big help. A lot of the time, you know, you can listen to things and like, okay, that's a great idea, but then you forget about it. But if you really take the time to take notes and really participate in the exercises, they'll really, really do wonders for your business, for yourself, for your creativity. I think the biggest thing I like about this class is that you can tell Andy has really taken the time to do this for himself. Like, I'm looking at my Pinterest board right now and I can't wait to create these things and pulling from different resources, I feel like a mad scientist. With a lot of things, I like to listen several times. The first time, I'll listen just to get a general sense of what's going on. The second time, I like to take notes. And the third time, I like to actually do the homework. But for this class, I was ready to do the homework after the first listen. So yeah, really take your time to go over this information. Really do the exercises because this maybe hour listening, maybe three hours to two hours figuring out yourself what you like will really help you for at I know at least a year so yes highly recommended 10 out of 10 good job Andy
I want to introduce to you someone who has been a huge part of the Skillshare classes we've made. Her name is Obriana McReynolds. She is the senior content producer at Skillshare. And working with her has been phenomenal. And I feel like one of the reasons these classes are so good is because I've been able to work with her kind of as an editor. And there's two things that she does that have really helped elevate some of this content. The first thing is she's kind of like a metal detector. We've been using her sensibility, her taste, as we would just do these big, long phone calls. And I would just be telling her every single idea around this topic uh, that I had and all of my personal stories and all that good stuff. And she kind of would filter through that stuff with her notes and help find where the gold was, which is just such a... Uh, fantastic tool that I always have the resource to have. And the second thing that she's done, she's really, really good at finding the cup to put the coffee in. We've talked about this on the show before, but for me, the essence of a good idea, the essence of a creative endeavor is like the coffee. It's like the this is what it's really all about. And I think a lot of creative people stop there. We want to just pour the hot coffee raw into the people's hands and just give it to them raw, man. Just like, you know, no holds barred. But that's not a great way to drink coffee. It's not a great way to consume creative materials. Like in order to know whether it's the kind of creative stuff we actually want to partake in, you've got to find a good package. You've got to find a good uh, way to to contain that stuff. And Obriana is really good at picking out when I would say something like, oh, that's the title, or this is something we need to expand into a lesson, or you know, this is how we need to be talking and packaging this to other people so they know how to consume it. And it was just super effective, and I wanted to have her bring some of her own creative ideas of how she's helped creatives package their ideas and, and get their messages out there. So this is just some like freebie tips and tactics from Obriana uh, and a little bit more about the class. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on this was I wanted to just hear from your perspective what you really liked about this particular class because I know you are very enthusiastic about the first class we did, but I, w I felt like you were even more enthusiastic about this one for some reason, which I don't know all the reasons why, but I was curious what your, what your favorite part was or why this class hit so well with you yeah I mean I think we had a first call where we talked about another idea and of course we were excited about it but it was like okay yeah we're, we'll take this somewhere uh but yeah. then you sent an email that was like wait we have to start over you're gonna hate me but also <laughs> like this is really important um and we got on the call and I think I was quarantining at my mom's and I was like outside on the deck and we ended up having a 90 minute call and you sort of walked me through this idea from start to finish step by step. And it, I could tell it was coming from such a deep personal place for you. And it wasn't even something you'd been able to articulate like three weeks earlier when we'd had the call. And the interesting thing is a, a question that Skillshare students always ask and a class that we're always have had in the back of our minds is like style, but it does seem like this. It's so different for everybody. How do you break style down into something that is sort of broadly applicable and action actionable? Uh, 
it seems like this hard thing that we we weren't really able to do. But then you came with this idea and it was like, oh my God, yes, this is what students have been asking for. And I think we we have sort of these uh, three things that we try to hit on with every Skillshare class. We want to make it personal. We want to make it actionable. And we want to make it demystifying. And mm. I think this class obviously hits all three, but it's the demystifying aspect of it that is like, you know, you learn how to do it, but you don't lose the magic. And that's yeah. something, that's an idea that you came with that felt like, wow, yeah, that even if we didn't have those three things articulated, this is all of that. So I think, I mean, I could tell from the beginning. If you're excited, I'm excited. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I forgot about that, actually. I forgot about how this all came together. We, well, I don't even re really remember what the first idea was for the call or for this class. And I, but I remember thinking this is stuff that I, you know, these are like things I like talking about. This is, yeah. feels like a nice natural next step to the next class and all that kind of stuff. And then I went away and I had a bunch of like kind of personal revelations about style and, and all, all these and how important the stuff we do in the class was to my journey and, and how, and all the pieces, they just kind of came together. And I remember writing that email thinking, oh my gosh, <laughs> now Brianna's going to have to do another huge call, call breaking this down. Um, but it ended up being super energetic and, and amazing. So yeah, I, another thing that you had mentioned uh, that you liked about the class was how we talk about using your mistakes and your failures. Mm -hmm. that, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's interesting when you asked me, thinking back on the class, like, do you have any wisdom you can share on the podcast for how creatives can best convey what it is they do, their unique value proposition and like a juicy, succinct package? And I was really thinking like, well, I don't know, you know, I video production <laughs> is such a interesting but kind of like separate thing but then I started making a list of just ways that I approach producing a class and like yeah. notes that I am always giving our teachers who aren't necessarily mm -hmm. professional teachers they're more like artists and one thing that I say is always like no embrace the mistakes you know we're gonna leave those in also if some part of your process is really ambiguous and like weird. Let's just speak to that. If it's like super non-linear and it's like, ah, I kind of jump around and it doesn't make sense. And half the time I get it wrong. People can feel like, oh, we need to edit that out. Or like, we need to skip that and set it up in advance. So it seems like this perfectly mm -hmm. smooth process. But for our students, that's not the way to learn. That also makes it seem like very unapproachable. Uh, you know, this person is birthing these ideas fully formed when that's not the case. So I think in, in making classes, like mistakes are often the best learning moments. And I think in, in the style class, what you were saying about pulling from your past experiments and your past mistakes and times something went weird, like those are, again, yeah. the most interesting pieces often. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting too that that mirrors kind of how we made the class. There was a huge, 
problem. Well, there are so many problems that have gone uh, uh. wrong as of late um, that we don't need to get into right now. But one of which meant that I couldn't travel to New York to teach the class and and to do do the shoot. And uh, you, all, Skillshare, has kind of taken a totally different approach in this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, which can you tell talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, so initially in March, we we're like, oh, we'll just pause on shoots for a minute. Uh, and then yeah, for two weeks, yeah. you know, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, a, a cosmic minute has since passed. Uh, yeah. Six months later, yeah. Uh, yeah. we figured out, okay, no, we need to figure out how we can still produce Skillshare originals uh, remotely. And our film team, they still boggle my mind. Uh, they essentially just did a bunch of experiments, put together what is the video kit they would use going on a shoot, but a super pared down version. And that's something that they send out to teachers. So we did like a zoom walkthrough of your space, sent you the kit. And then we're on zoom talking you through, okay, plug the dongle into the second port and like, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) turn the tripod this way. Uh, Luckily we had Ryan there. So you weren't getting up to adjust the camera endlessly. Uh, And then we plug it all into a computer that our videographer is controlling remotely. So he was actually able to push start and stop uh, and control the cameras. And I think it ended up, I've actually been loving it because it allows us to go into these spaces we wouldn't otherwise. Um, for you, it was your studio. It's weird how much we end up filming classes in people's bedrooms with their cats and yeah. their kids. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it just feels a lot less professional. We're shooting this video and a lot more like, okay, we're just making this cool thing together. So yeah, it's actually been cool. And it's hitting one of those core points of them being more personal. And actually one of the reasons why this class is so special to me is because of that constraint is having to do it in the studio opened up all kinds of ideas. I think that's where we started thinking about costumes and just watching them, watching the lessons of me and my space. I feel it just feels very at home. I have a backdrop of a mural that I made, which is in my style. And it just, you know, it's just a perfect example of how mistakes or constraints or problems end up becoming uh, additive to your style instead of subtractive if you approach them that way. Um, so that's kind of meta that even the video, the style of the video was made from, you know, problems. It's extremely meta. Yeah. Had you come to New York, I don't think you would have brought two alien costumes with you. Though maybe. That's, yeah, that's <laughs> probably true. Um, well, thank you so much for doing this. And I, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. I even more appreciate all the work that you did on the classes because they wouldn't be what they are without your help. And uh, I really appreciate it. Well, I'm just excited for number three and four and five. So, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. Been great. All right. Give me a minute and then we'll talk about that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Don't get yeah. too excited. I need a nap and all kinds of other stuff. Um, <laughs> thanks, Obiana. <Next> <laughs> thanks, Andy. Good yeah. to talk to you. Yep.
Thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme music. Thanks to Alex Sugg for our soundtrack. Thanks to Jordan Aaron for editing the show so beautifully. Thank you to Ryan Appleton for helping me make this class possible, helping me make this episode possible, and uh, everything else that he makes my life so much easier (laughs) and makes the creative stuff so much better. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks to all of you for listening. Until we speak again, stay pepped up. (laughs) 